You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 79 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, thanks for tuning into the podcast. On the same day that the Battle of Port Royal Sound took place, November 7th, 1861, another battle took place out west along the Mississippi River at Belmont, Missouri. Belmont was an old ferry landing occupied by a small Confederate garrison. It lay on the west side of the Mississippi, directly across the river from the key rebel-fortified position at Columbus, Kentucky. The Union force that set out to strike the Confederates at Belmont consisted of five infantry regiments, two cavalry companies, and a single battery of artillery, about 3,000 men in all. The officer in command of the operation was an obscure 39-year-old Brigadier General of Volunteers named Ulysses S. Grant. Belmont was Grant's first battle of the Civil War, and although it was no model of sound planning and was characterized by sloppiness of execution, it was bold and audacious and brought Grant to the attention of Abraham Lincoln. It was the first notice that anyone of importance in Washington had taken of him, but from then on, the president would pay special attention to General Grant, not because Grant was a political ally or old friend, but because in Lincoln's short but famous explanation, he fights. At Belmont, after Grant's small command had landed and initially broke the enemy line, Confederate reinforcements arrived from across the river and threatened to surround the Union force and capture the lot of them. When one of his subordinates counseled surrender, Grant simply noted that they had cut their way in and they could cut their way out just as well, and they proceeded to do just that. Before that, six weeks before the Civil War's first big battle took place along the banks of Bull Run near Manassas, Virginia, William Tecumseh Sherman had predicted, quote, As soon as the real war begins, new men, heretofore unheard of, will emerge from obscurity equal to any occasion, end quote. Now, it's doubtful Sherman was thinking of Grant at that time, but nevertheless his words perfectly capture U.S. Grant's improbable rise to greatness during the Civil War. When the war began in April 1861, Ulysses S. Grant was a former Army captain clerking at his father's leather goods store in Galena, Illinois. Three years later, he was General-in-Chief of the United States Army. First off, let's address his name. He spent the first 17 years of his life as Hiram Ulysses Grant, 
firstborn son of Jesse and Hannah Simpson Grant. But in May 1839, when he attempted to register with the adjutant at West Point under his given name, he found that the official paperwork regarding his appointment submitted by the representative from his district in Ohio, that paperwork had dispensed with Hiram altogether and renamed him Ulysses Simpson Grant. Since that's what it said on the official paperwork, he was told that if he wished to attend West Point, it would have to be under that name or not at all. So the young man, who never liked Hiram much anyway, embraced his new name, given to him by a clerical error in Congressman's office. Grant was born on April 27, 1822, in Point Pleasant, Ohio. The baby actually went unnamed for a month before Hannah's mother suggested Ulysses after the Greek hero, and then Hannah's father offered up Hiram, a biblical name from the Old Testament. Jesse Grant pleased both his in-laws when he declared the baby would be named Hiram Ulysses Grant, although it seems the boy was always known as Ulysses. At some point, though, the young Grant realized his initials were H-U-G, which he felt was vaguely embarrassing and not terribly manly, and so was one of the reasons he never much liked the name Hiram. At the time of Grant's birth, his father, Jesse, was a tannery worker in Point Pleasant, a small settlement on the banks of the Ohio River, about 20 miles upstream from Cincinnati. Jesse had married Hannah Simpson in June 1821, and the couple had rented a simple white frame house in Point Pleasant next to the tannery. According to Brooks Simpson, in his book Ulysses S. Grant, Triumph Over Adversity, 1822-1865, Jesse, quote, exemplified what America was all about, a man of restless ambition striving to make his own way in the world. He was not shy about sharing his dreams, his hopes, and his accomplishments with anyone who would listen. End quote. Having been pretty much left to fend for himself since the tender age of 11, Jesse began to learn the tanner's trade when he was 16, and he worked at several tanneries in Ohio. And just as an interesting historical footnote, but one of those tanneries where Jesse Grant learned his trade was one owned by a man named Owen Brown, whose son, John, openly denounced slavery and who, years later, would become infamous for murdering pro-slavery settlers in Kansas and then for leading an ill-fated raid on the federal arsenal at Harpers Ferry, Virginia, in an attempt to spark a slave insurrection in the South. Anyway, although Jesse Grant shared the Brown family's anti-slavery sentiments, he kept his energies focused on learning his trade. Although when he wasn't scraping or tanning hides, he did spend his time reading books and writing to the local newspapers, sharing his opinions on any variety of topics, including politics. The year after Ulysses was born, Jesse had enough experience and had saved up enough money to strike out on his own. He moved his family inland to Georgetown, the county seat, and set up his own tannery a block east of the town square. By 1839, the Grants had three boys and three girls. As the eldest, Ulysses had his own room on the second floor of the family's home, but he didn't much appreciate the view, since about all he could see was his father's tannery. It would be an understatement to say that young Ulysses never cared for the tanning business. He much preferred to spend his time with living animals, especially horses, with which from an early age he exhibited a special affinity. 
Ulysses would often engage other boys to to do his chores at the tannery while he hired himself out to local townsfolk to break and train horses. When Jesse opened a small livery business, it was Ulysses who often drove passengers, sometimes as far as Cincinnati, or carted wood into town to sell. He was happy just doing anything that involved horses. Brooks Simpson writes that, quote, At school, Ulysses was well-behaved, usually escaping the schoolmaster's switch. His schoolmates found him quiet, a bit shy, and not particularly studious. He was a real nice boy, one of the girls later remembered, who never had anything to say, and when he said anything, he always said it short. Another playmate noted that while Ulysses was up to any lark with us, he went about everything in such a peculiarly businesslike way, I don't remember that I ever saw him excited. End quote. Simpson notes that perhaps Ulysses was so quiet, because as the son of the outspoken Jesse, the boy, quote, did not want to call more attention to himself, except when he mounted a horse, when he mixed flair with an occasional willingness to show off. End quote. In his memoirs, Grant recounted one famous horse story from his childhood. The story goes that a certain Mr. Ralston owned a fine colt that eight-year-old Ulysses longed to possess. Jesse offered the man $20, but Ralston said he would not accept anything less than 25 In his memoirs, Grant recalled, quote, I was so anxious to have the colt that after the owner left, I begged to be allowed to take him at the price demanded, end quote. Jesse gave in to his son's request, but with one stipulation. Ulysses should bargain first, just in case Ralston might let the colt go for a lower price. Grant later remembered that, quote, When I got to Mr. Ralston's house, I said to him, Papa says I may offer you $20 for the colt, but if you won't take that, I am to offer you 22 and a half, and if you won't take that, to give you 25 end quote. Needless to say, an amused Ralston collected the full $25. At the time, the story of the horse trade amused the Grant's small-town neighbors to no end and embarrassed Ulysses' father. But Brooks Simpson writes, quote, Biographers looking to find the man and the boy have read much into the incident. It was an early sign of his naivete in business. It illustrated his determination to gain his objective. It epitomized his guilelessness and gullibility. But Grant put his own stamp on the story. I certainly showed very plainly that I had come for the colt and meant to have him, he recounted. End quote. Although from an early age, Jesse Grant had had to make his own way in the world through hard work, as an adult, he nevertheless prized schooling and was determined that his children would be- receive the benefit of a good education. To this end, Jesse got it into his head that Ulysses would attend the United States Military Academy at West Point. There, not only would his son receive a first-rate education and solid preparation for a useful profession, but the government would foot the bill. And it's not necessarily that he envisioned his son making a career of the military, since Jesse had learned that many West Pointers left the Army after a few years of service to return to civilian life with no stigma attached. That knowledge seemed to make up Jesse's mind. Ulysses would go to West Point. Grant arrived at West Point in May 1839, and as we've already said, because of the mix-up with his name, 
he became Ulysses Simpson Grant. Some of the cadets, seeing the name U.S. Grant on the list of incoming candidates, jokingly guessed the initials stood for Uncle Sam, and it didn't take very long for Grant's friends to start calling him Sam. By his own admission, Grant was not an enthusiastic student. In his memoirs, he said, quote, A military life had no charms for me, and I had not the faintest idea of staying in the army, even if I should be graduated, which I did not expect. I did not take hold of my studies with avidity. In fact, I rarely ever read over a lesson the second time during my entire cadetship. There is a fine library connected with the academy, from which cadets can get books to read in their quarters. I devoted more time to these than to books relating to my course of studies. Much of the time, I am sorry to say, was devoted to novels, but not those of the trashy sort. End quote. While at West Point, Sam Grant did excel at mathematics, at which he earned top grades, and the school's art master brought out in him a previously unknown talent for drawing and painting. Even if he wasn't a particularly enthusiastic scholar, Grant did at times acknowledge the value of the education he was receiving at West Point. In a letter to a cousin, he wrote, quote, On the whole, I like the place very much, so much so that I would not go away on any account. The fact is, if a man graduates here, he is safe for life. Let him go where he will, end quote. Besides mathematics, there was another course in which Grant excelled. In his sophomore year, the Academy introduced a course on horsemanship, and Grant's natural gifts in that area quickly set him apart from his fellow cadets, so much so that he became the school's most talented rider. A cadet named James Fry described what happened in the riding hall where part of the final exercises for Grant's graduating class took place. After various mounted drills were performed for the audience of parents and dignitaries and other guests, Fry recalled that, quote, The class, still mounted, was formed in line through the center of the hall. The riding master placed the leaping bar higher than a man's head and called out, Cadet Grant? A clean-faced, slender, blue-eyed young fellow dashed from the ranks on a powerfully built chestnut sorrel horse and galloped down the opposite side of the hall. As he turned at the farther end and came into the stretch at which the bar was placed, the horse increased his pace and, measuring his stride for the great leap before him, bounded into the air and cleared the bar, carrying his rider as if man and beast had been welded together. The spectators were breathless. End quote. And so before he graduated, Sam Grant set the Academy's high jump record, which would stand for the next 25 years. Because of his talent as a horseman, Grant applied to enter the Dragoons upon graduation, and he was disappointed when his application was denied. Instead, as a newly minted second lieutenant, he was assigned to the 4th Infantry Regiment, which was stationed in Missouri, a few miles south of St. Louis, at Jefferson Barracks. Grant's roommate his senior year at West Point had been Frederick Dent, a cadet from St. Louis. Dent had urged his roommate to call on his family after Grant arrived at Jefferson Barracks. And so the lonely, newly commissioned young lieutenant became a frequent visitor at Whitehaven, the Dent's 1,200-acre farm outside St. Louis. Grant's roommate, Fred, had been named after his father, Frederick F. Dent, a well-to-do St. Louis merchant who preferred the title colonel, even though he held no official military status. 
The colonel, a slave owner, disliked Northerners and Whigs, so that was two strikes against Grant. But fortunately, Mrs. Dent took an immediate liking to Ulysses, and on his visits to Whitehaven, she always invited him to stay for supper. For his part, Grant enjoyed the time he spent with the Dents, and before long, a romance began to blossom between Ulysses and the family's eldest daughter, 18-year-old Julia. In her book, U.S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth, Joan Waugh explains how, quote, When the 4th Infantry received orders in May 1844 to leave for Louisiana, Grant mustered up courage and asked for Julia's hand in marriage. Julia agreed, but stipulated that their engagement be kept secret for a while. Her mother, Ellen Dent, expressed warm feelings for her daughter's suitor, but Colonel Dent was unenthusiastic about the prospect of his daughter's marriage to a poorly paid junior grade officer in the U.S. Army. Julia felt she needed time to win over her father before making a public declaration. Indeed, most of their five-year courtship and engagement would be conducted in the midst of Grant's long absences in Army service. Grant suffered evident frustration with the state of affairs, as is shown in two of many sweetly plain of letters to his intended. Julia, can we hope that your pa will be induced to change his opinion of Army life? He asked after hearing that Colonel Dent had once again refused to give his blessing to their marriage. A bit later, he wrote, my happiness would be complete if a return mail should bring me a letter setting the time not far distant when I might clasp that little hand and call it mine. His letters to Julia reveal a tender, anxious lover unafraid to express his emotions freely. A relieved Grant finally secured Julia's father's approval of their engagement during a brief leave in the spring of 1845. End quote. But although Ulysses and Julia could now announce their engagement publicly, their marriage would have to wait a while, because after that brief leave in the spring of 1845, Lieutenant Grant's regiment was sent to Texas, and the young officer soon found himself caught up in the Mexican-American War. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Later in his life, Grant would say that the Mexican-American War was, quote, one of the most unjust ever waged by a stronger against a weaker nation, end quote. But that was his judgment in later years. At the time, he mostly grumbled about how the conflict took him away from his beloved Julia. In March 1846, the 4th Infantry joined the American forces under Zachary Taylor down along the Rio Grande. As y'all will recall, that area was claimed by both Mexico and the United States, and President James Polk had ordered the army into the disputed zone in order to goad the Mexicans into war. As Grant later put it, quote, we were sent to provoke a fight, but it was essential that Mexico should commence it, end quote. Polk's plan worked when the Mexicans responded to the provocation by attacking a detachment of American soldiers in April 1846. After that, the war was on, and it didn't take Lieutenant Grant long to get into combat. As Zachary Taylor moved to secure his supply line to the coast, fighting took place on May 8th at a place called Palo Alto, about five miles from modern-day Brownsville, Texas. There, Grant found himself under fire for the first time. He later wrote about it to Julia, saying, quote, Although the balls were whizzing thick and fast about me, I did not feel a sensation of fear until nearly the close of firing. A ball struck close by me, killing one man instantly. It knocked Captain Page's underjaw entirely off and broke in the roof of his mouth, and knocked Lieutenant Wallen and one sergeant down besides. End quote. Darkness brought an end to the fighting, and the Mexicans withdrew. But the next day, May 9th, the Americans found the reinforced enemy drawn up in a defensive line beyond a series of ponds at Risaca de la Palma. As Taylor ordered his force forward, the captain of Grant's company was with the Army scouts, so Grant was in command of the unit as it advanced into combat. Grant's company was on the American right, and he led it forward under fire through the chaparral thickets. Finally reaching some clear ground, Grant led his men in a charge that captured a group of Mexican soldiers led by a wounded colonel. Grant was thrilled until he suddenly realized his charge had actually been over ground already seized by other Americans and his prisoners had in fact already surrendered to others. In that same letter to Julia, Grant explained, quote, The Mexicans fought very hard for an hour and a half but seeing their means of war fall from their hands in spite of their efforts, they finally commenced to retreat helter-skelter, end quote. As for being under fire again, he told her, quote, There is no great sport in having bullets flying about one in every direction, but I find they have less horror when among them than when in anticipation, end quote. Grant's next taste of combat came when Taylor's army captured Monterey, the most important city in northern Mexico. But first, during the advance to Monterey, Grant had actually received a new assignment. Apparently, because of his talent with horses, someone higher up in, com in the chain of command decided that meant he would also be good with mules. So Lieutenant Grant was named his regiment's quartermaster. As quartermaster, he was tasked with arranging transport for the unit's provisions and equipment as the Army advanced to Monterey. Grant wasn't thrilled with the new assignment, so he wrote to his colonel saying, quote, 
I respectfully protest against being assigned to a duty which removes me from sharing in the dangers and honors of service with my company at the front, end quote. But his protest was rejected. During the march to Monterey, the mules reminded Grant why he liked horses better. The experience tested his patience, so much so that he later said, quote, I'm not aware of ever having used a profane expletive in my life, but I would have the charity to excuse those who may have done so if they were in charge of a train of Mexican pack mules at the time, end quote. In September 1846, the fight for the fortified city of Monterey would be the first serious battle of the war. At Monterey, over 7,000 Mexican soldiers awaited Zachary Taylor's 6,000-man army, an army which now was made up of not only regular soldiers of the U.S. Army, but also large numbers of volunteer citizen soldiers who had flocked to the colors after the start of the war. After a two-week march, the American army reached their objective, and Grant wrote to Julia, saying, quote, Monterey is a beautiful city enclosed on three sides by the mountains, with a pass through them to the right and to the left. There are points around the city which command it, and these the Mexicans fortified and armed. The city is built almost entirely of stone and with very thick walls, end quote. Taylor's plan was to overcome Monterey's defenses by attacking from three directions at once. One division would advance from the west, another would strike from the east and battle toward the city's central plaza, and then a third division, coming in from the north, would assault the enemy's strong point known as the Black Fort. On the first day of fighting, September 21st, as the Americans attacked and as the firing grew more intense, Quartermaster Grant grew impatient waiting with the reserves to the north of the city, and so he mounted a horse and rode forward. When the 4th Infantry received the order to charge, he later recalled that, quote, Lacking the moral courage to return to camp where I had been ordered to stay, I charged with the regiment. End quote. The 4th Infantry was forced to retreat as the assault from the north was repulsed by the Mexican defenders but the other American attacks from the east and west fared better. Both sides spent the next day consolidating their positions, and then on the third day of the battle for the city, Grant joined the forces pushing into Monterey from the east. In brutal street-to-street and sometimes house-to-house fighting, the Americans doggedly kept moving forward. In his book, The Man Who Saved the Union, Ulysses Grant in War and Peace, H.W. Brands describes what happened next. Quote, the fourth had almost reached the central plaza when the ammunition ran short. The commanding officer asked for a volunteer to return to the rear with a message for help. Grant tightened the girth on his saddle and offered to go. I adjusted myself on the side of my horse furthest from the enemy, he explained afterward, and with only one foot holding to the cannel of the saddle and an arm over the neck of the horse exposed, I started at a full run. He was most vulnerable at the intersections of streets, where dozens of Mexicans had clear shots at him, yet he dashed across at such a gallop that he was behind the next row of buildings before most of the defenders even saw him. He completed his ride winded but unscathed, only to learn that his effort had been wasted. Before the needed ammunition could be sent forward, his comrades had been compelled to fall back. End quote. 
The assault by the Americans on the west side of the city was more successful, and by the end of the third day, the Mexican commander of Monterey decided to negotiate a truce. Zachary Taylor initially demanded the Mexicans surrender the city and give themselves up as prisoners of war, but the enemy commander refused those terms. He pointed out the defenders could still make the final capture of Monterey an extremely costly business for the Americans. So he offered to give up the city, but not his army, which would withdraw southward across the mountains. Taylor agreed to the compromise, and the Mexican defenders started to evacuate Monterey the next day. As Lieutenant Grant watched the enemy soldiers leave the city, he noted that, quote, many of the prisoners... And the departing Mexican soldiers weren't actually prisoners, but anyway. Many of the prisoners were cavalry, armed with lances and mounted on miserable little half-starved horses that did not look as if they could carry their riders out of town. The men looked in but little better condition. I thought of how little interest the men before me had in the results of the war and how little knowledge they had of what it was all about." One interesting aspect of the campaign to capture Monterey is that one of Grant's comrades was Thomas Hammer, the Ohio congressman who had nominated him for West Point. Hammer had volunteered for service when war broke out and been appointed a major of volunteers. Finding they were both serving with Taylor's army in northern Mexico, Major Hammer and Lieutenant Grant, despite their differences in rank and age, spent quite a bit of time together. Hammer was impressed with the young man, observing in a letter home, quote, I have found Lieutenant Grant a most remarkable and valuable soldier. I anticipate for him a brilliant future if he should have an opportunity to display his powers when they mature. Young as he is, he has been of great value and service to me. Of course, Lieutenant Grant is too young for command, but his capacity for future military usefulness is undoubted. End quote. Hammer survived the Battle of Monterey, but then sadly he fell ill with dysentery soon afterward and died. After the capture of Monterey, the 4th Infantry Regiment settled down to occupation duty, but then in early 1847 it was taken from Taylor's force in northern Mexico and reassigned to Winfield Scott's army, which was going to invade central Mexico by landing at Veracruz and then marching on the enemy capital, Mexico City. Grant appreciated the time he spent soldiering under old rough-and-ready Zachary Taylor. He admired Taylor's leadership style, since the general was a quiet, confident commander, combining simplicity, lack of pretension, and directness of expression with the determination to win. James McPherson points out that later on during the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant, either consciously or subconsciously, modeled himself on Zachary Taylor. For example, Taylor preferred relaxed attire. He was known to every soldier in his army and was respected by all. And although he wasn't known for being a great conversationalist, he could put his meaning down on paper so that there was no mistaking it. Grant especially strove to emulate that last quality, and during the Civil War, one of his virtues as a commander was the clarity of his orders and dispatches. And then during the Civil War, Grant's composure under fire and his willingness to take responsibility and make decisions also seemed to be modeled on old Rough and Ready's example. Of his commander during the Mexican War, Grant would say, quote, No soldier could face either danger or responsibility more calmly than Taylor. These are qualities more rarely found than genius or physical courage. End quote. 
Well, and on that note, right smack dab in the middle of the Mexican-American War, as his regiment is about to join Winfield Scott's epic campaign to capture Mexico City, this seems like a good spot to take a break in Grant's story. So next week, we'll pick back up at this point, and in that show, we'll carry the tale forward from Mexico all the way up to the Civil War. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Ulysses S. Grant, Triumph Over Adversity, 1822 to 1865, by Brooks D. Simpson. Triumph Over Adversity has been out for a while now, since 2000, but you still hear that it's just the first part of a planned two-part biography of Grant by Brooks Simpson. So hopefully we'll get that second part someday. Uh, Anyway, there are a number of good Grant biographies out there. This just happens to be our favorite. And its strength is definitely as a military biography, which we appreciate. Uh, Just under 400 pages of Triumph Over Adversity are devoted to Grant during the Civil War. Anyway, as always, you guys can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.com. And don't forget that you can find us on Facebook. We appreciate everyone who has joined our growing little community on Facebook. We're also on Twitter. Uh, There each day, or most days, we're still following what happened 150 years ago in the Civil War. And for your convenience, there are links on the website to both the Facebook page and Twitter accounts. And y'all are still leaving us some great five-star reviews on iTunes. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Rich and I appreciate each and every one of those. Plus, they help other people find the podcast on iTunes. And then Tracy and I want to thank John S., who is listening to the podcast while he's living abroad in Singapore, uh, for his donation and his note. Thanks, John. We appreciate the support and encouragement. And thanks to all of y'all for listening to this episode of The Civil War. 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join Rich and I again next week when we continue with Ulysses S. Grant's life story. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. But in May 1839, when he attempted to register with the adjutant at West Point under his given name, he found that the official paperwork regarding his appointment, submitted by the representative from his district in Ohio, that paperwork had dispensed with Hiram altogether and renamed him Ulysses Gramson.